I have just one more announcement that I would want to bring your attention to. That is on the 18th of this month, Sunday, the 18th of October, we are planning an ordination service for Jim Wine. You'll see it there in your bulletin. Service is going to begin at 1.30. It'll run approximately an hour and it will be in here. And we thought it'd be just a great idea to facilitate fellowship together if we had a lunch together beforehand. And so we're planning that. We're bringing in the taco man and uh, by popular demand. So the lunch tickets are $4 per person with a family cap of $20. The meal will begin precisely at noon. It will start serving tacos until one o'clock. So you want to make sure that you make your reservation and pay ahead of time. We have two weeks to do this because after that it's closed off. So you can do that online at the website or you can do it during the week at the office, but don't miss it. Certainly you're welcome to the ordination service itself if you choose not to stay for lunch for some reason, but we certainly would love to have you uh, join us and enjoy tacos together. So that's the 18th of October. I don't get to out to the movies very often. Carol and I, we, we're uh, old fogies. We, our kids would laugh at us and do laugh at us. Uh, it's date night, so we're going to go out to, to dinner. And so we go early enough. Well, we don't get the, the rubber chicken at four o'clock, but we go pretty early. <laughs> and then after dinner, it's usually around 6.30 or 7, and, and I'll say to her, do you want to go to the movies? And she says, no, there's nothing playing, and I'm tired. And, and I say, yeah, I'm kind of tired too. You, how about a cup of coffee? No, that'll keep us awake. <laughs> so, so about 7.30, we arrived back home, and the kids would laugh and say, how was your big date night? And we said, it was great. <laughs> Put our fuzzy slippers on and go to bed at 9. <laughs> so we don't get to the movies very often. But there was a trilogy, a, a movie trilogy that we did see in the theaters that probably is my all-time favorite series of films. The Lord of the Ring trilogy. In that series of films, yeah, we've got a few fans out there, don't we? In that series of films, the cinematography of the vast panorama of the nation of New Zealand popped my eyes. It was so gorgeous, and the way they filmed it is so majestic. It is incredible. Not only that, there are a number of biblical themes that are woven into that movie. I'm not saying it's a Christian movie, but there are biblical themes that are readily apparent there for people who have eyes to see. And in the third installment of that trilogy, the city of Minas Tirith is facing certain annihilation with the dark and evil forces of the kingdom of Mordor. And at the moment in time when the city is beginning to be overrun and the residents slaughtered and all looks hopeless, the long-anticipated king returns. He fights on behalf of that city and that nation, leading the armies 
to overthrow and destroy the evil that has been arrayed against them. We arrive this morning at a message we began last week entitled, The Return of the King. And yes, for those of you who asked me, that is where I took the title from. The Return of the King. It's so appropriate, so fitting. We're coming back to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we were looking at it together last week, and we'll continue this week looking at that topic together under what I'm calling the ABCs of the second coming. Three important events that mark the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, that can be designated by the letters A, B, and C. And we want to look at these events together, and really all of this series on prophecy, because it fixes our eyes on reality and gets them off the stuff of this earth, which is passing, temporal. The ABCs of the second coming. It is a fearful and it is a glorious event. Last time we looked only at the A. That's all we were able to get to. That's all we were able to get to. <laughs> Requires no comment beyond that. A was Armageddon. A was Armageddon. Commonly known as the Battle of Armageddon, but as we said last time, probably better translated campaign or war of Armageddon. And it describes a lengthy series of events making up or skirmishes and battles making up this final conflict that marks the end of the age. I asked the secretaries to put in the bulletin again the same handout that was there last week. It's identical. Those of you who weren't here last week, you've got it. Those of you that were and lost it, you've got it. And those of you who have it twice, you have it twice. Essentially, everything I'm going to say is written there for you. So you don't have to frantically try to scratch down and look up every single Bible reference. Armageddon, the final conflict. As we noted last time, it centers around the city of Jerusalem, but actually spreads across the land of Israel. It begins in the valley of Jezreel, in the region of Megiddo in the north. And it runs all the way south to the city of Basra in the ancient kingdom of Eden, modern Jordan, south there of the Dead Sea, south and east of the Dead Sea. It also runs in the east to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And according to the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 14 and in verse 20, the landmass covered in this final conflict is an area approximating 200 miles, 200 miles. When the hour is darkest, when Jerusalem has been captured, her walls breached and she is being openly plundered and looted by the armies of Antichrist, it is at that moment, the most bleak time in the nation's history, that her king returns to the Mount of Olives, his feet 
come down on the Mount of Olives, that place from which he departed, according to Acts chapter 1. He returns at that point, and in a great earthquake, the mountain is split, and Christ rides out as the warrior king, leading an angelic army, and accompanied by we, his people, who have now been glorified. He leads out this army to defeat the enemies of the ancient people of Israel. At the end of that time, when those armies are shattered there, and again, John says the, the extent of that conflict will splash blood to the height of the bridle of a horse for 200 miles. When that final conflict ends, the Antichrist and his false prophet are seized and are cast into the lake of fire to receive their eternal judgment and condemnation. A. Armageddon. B. Belief. B. Belief. Open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12 at this point. The 12th chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah. That's page 948. If you are using a pew Bible. The prophet Zechariah is what is called a post-exilic prophet. That is, he writes to the nation of Israel after her Babylonian exile. After the 70 years in Babylon, they are, they are come back into the land. At least a remnant comes back into the land in accordance with the ancient prophecy of Jeremiah. In accordance with the decree of Cyrus, they come back to the land. And God sends a couple of prophets to the people to encourage them really in a twofold way. He sends the prophet Haggai to encourage them to rebuild the temple and he sends the prophet Zechariah to encourage them with the temple and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah writes approximately 520 B.C. This ancient prophecy is primarily what is called eschatological or dealing with the end times for the nation of Israel. It would be delightful to preach through this book someday. Maybe we will. But for now, we are dipping in. And so we are dipping here into chapter 12. The earlier part of the chapter we looked at last week is an overview description of this great conflict of Armageddon. And then beginning in verse 10 and running through the end of the chapter and actually into chapter 13 deals with the nation of Israel and their response to the return of their warrior king who has just rescued them from obliteration. Following the reading beginning in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadrad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family by itself. And the family of the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. 
the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. In a prophetic look into the future, in a vision given to the prophet Zechariah by God. He gives us a glimpse of how the nation will respond. The return of Jesus Christ will strike the people of Israel in a way unlike they have ever been struck before. They will be overwhelmed by their guilt Overwhelmed by their guilt and their sin and their hardness of heart in crucifying their Messiah. According to the prophet and what he records for us here, we have the most poignant account in the entire Bible of the repentance of the nation of Israel and their turning to Jesus in faith. It is at this time that God pours out, again, verse 10, upon the nation the spirit of grace and supplication. Another name for the Holy Spirit. He pours out His Holy Spirit upon them. And He does this in fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant that had been given to the nation previously in the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. For example, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 and 28, or through 28, rather, the prophet says there, I will put my spirit, speaking to the people, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The prophet Jeremiah records, I will put my law within them and on their hearts I will write it. The Spirit of God. That which He has done for you and I. That which we celebrated here earlier in the Lord's Supper will become true of the nation of Israel. In a most basic and fundamental sense, the coming of the Spirit of God is the coming of the last age, the final age, the age of the Spirit. And so the prophet records for us here that it is that time when Christ returns, when He shatters their enemies, when He rescues them from certain destruction, it is at that time that He will pour out His Spirit upon the nation. And it is at that time that the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26 come true. And thus all Israel will be saved. It is the Spirit's work, beloved, to bring brokenness and sorrow over sin. It is His work. Notice how it's recorded for us here. It is at the time of the return of Christ to rescue his nation that that generation of Jewish people come to a very awful realization. It dawns on them that their previous unbelief, that their previous rejection of Jesus as Messiah has made the deeds and the practices of their ancestors their own. Look again with me. They will look on me whom they have pierced. 
Those alive at that day were not literally and physically there at the cross. They are not the ones who called for his execution. They are not the ones who said, we have no king but Caesar. It was their ancestors. Yet by the continual and persistent unbelief and rejection of Jesus, an unbelief and a rejection that continues in the nation of Israel, even to this day, a blindness Paul says, like a veil over their face that they cannot see as it continues to this day, they become one with those who went before. And they realize, yes, yes, we have we have approved their ugly deed. We have become one with those that have gone before us. It is as if we literally pierced our own Messiah. And it's in that state of brokenness that they turn to God in believing prayer and they beg Him for forgiveness and relief. How deep is the mourning at this point? The prophet uses two intense expressions of personal grief that they might understand, that we might understand how deep The morning is when the dam breaks, when the nation finally comes to see how deep will be the morning. He says it's like one who mourns, verse 10, for an only son. Like the bitter weeping over a firstborn, it is likened unto the grief a parent feels in the loss of their only son. The tragic premature death of their only son, the one in whom all their hopes and all their dreams are bound up and he is snatched from them in the prime of life. Only those who have undergone such intense pain can understand what we're talking about. But the prophet said it's like that. It's that kind of sorrow. It's that kind of grief. Beyond that, he speaks in verse 11 about a national grief. Those who have never experienced the loss of the only son, there there is a national grief that can be identified here. Verse 11, in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. What is he talking about? He's speaking about the national sorrow that the kingdom of Judah felt and experienced over the death of their last righteous king, Josiah. Perhaps you remember this. Josiah had gone out to battle in the plain of Jezreel in the valley of Megiddo, strangely enough, seeking to intercept Pharaoh and his army that were headed north to do battle with the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish. And there, in that valley, Josiah, the righteous king, the one who was instituting all of these reforms and turning the nation back to God, is prematurely slain. He's struck down, killed. And with his death is the death of all hope for the nation of Israel, for the kingdom of Judah. There is nothing now to hold back the apostasy. It is a natural tragedy that has fallen upon them. It is their last and fading hope of revival. The nation will now fall into full apostasy. 
In that day there will be great mourning, he says, like unto the mourning of the death of Josiah in the plain of Megiddo. National mourning. But beyond that, there is the personal mourning. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14. Yes, it's national for the people, but it is also intensely personal. It's individual. Six times in verses 12 through 14, the prophet says a family will mourn by itself. Both the descendants of the house of David and the descendants of the house of Levi. David and his son Nathan. Levi and his grandson Shimei. That is, both the royal and the priestly houses will mourn. And by saying this, what the prophet is saying is that if the royal house mourns and the priestly house mourns, all will mourn. All the commoners will mourn as well. By itself. By itself. By itself. Beyond that, the prophet makes it a point to say five times in this short passage, five times that wives mourn separate from their husbands. Do you see it? Verse 13, for example, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. What's he saying? Beloved, the closest of human relationships is marriage. The Bible calls it a one flesh relationship. It is a man and a woman who become one in the eyes of the Lord. There is no closer relationship than that. And yet what the prophet is saying is that the repentance and sorrow and mourning that accompanies conversion, turning to Messiah by faith is so personal, so intense that even husband and wife must find a separate room, as it were, and deal with God by themselves. They must be alone with God. They must mourn separate from their husbands. And husbands must mourn separate from their wives. Even marriage must yield before the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone, listen to me, everyone senses the need to be alone with God at that moment. You know, that's how salvation is. That's how salvation is. That's how it works. That's how God operates. That's how the Spirit of God works. He doesn't work in a communal sense. He works individually, personally. Individually, we recognize our sin. Individually, we recognize our guilt. Individually, we cry out to Christ to save us. I shall never forget. I shall never forget the Thursday evening in 1978 in the month of May. When having been exposed to the gospel a number of times, having been given a Bible and having begun to read, having been made aware of Christ and His sacrifice, and God and His justice, and His law. 
having been made aware of the fact that Christ died in the place of sinners, yet all in a general sense it was still out there. I will never forget the Thursday evening when all alone in my dormitory room, God caused the reality of that to come crashing in on me and I saw only God and me. And I was undone. I became so convicted of my own guilt and my own sin. I came to realize God's righteous and holy standard and my failure to live to it and the wrath of God that I justly deserved and I had no place to go but to cry out for His mercy. And I did. By this power of the Spirit of God, I did. And beloved, as the songwriter said, the chains fell off. My heart was free. I arose, went forth, and followed thee. God changed me that night. He saved my soul. A is Armageddon. B is belief. Personal belief. C. Confinement. Confinement. Ever since his fall from glory, Satan has been involved in a long war against God. He struck first in the Garden of Eden when seducing Eve into taking of the forbidden fruit and through her, Adam, partaking and ruining the race of men. And from that time forth, the devil, as he is also known, the accuser, has followed a three-part strategy to oppose God and His people at every turn. Satan has repeatedly incited fallen humanity to violence. He has brought forth violence and bloodshed on this planet and there is no end to it. It is of a general nature, but it is of a more specific nature focused on the people of Israel. One cannot read the Scriptures without coming to that understanding that the persistent attempts of humanity to destroy the people of Israel is a satanically inspired attempt. Beyond that, the evil one, the dragon of old, conducts a regular campaign of accusing the believers before God's throne. He is the accuser. He is the one who says before God, look at them. They don't love you. They're only in it for what they can get out of it. Look at the number of times they say with their lips they love you, and yet with their lives they contradict. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Where there it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. Listen, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. One of Satan's strategies is to accuse the people of God before the throne of grace day and night. 
And finally, he actively is sowing the seeds of discord and false teaching among the people of God. You have a reference there, by the way. It says 1 Corinthians 11. Make it 2 Corinthians and you'll arrive in the right place. Make it 2 Corinthians. Satan is involved in regularly seeking to disrupt the fellowship of this local body. He is not passive. He is not inactive. The higher the profile we have in the community, the greater our assault upon the gates of hell, the greater will be the blowback. Seeds of discourse. False teaching. Beloved, do not be used of Him. Do not be unwittingly used of Him. Keep the accounts short with each other. Forgive one another. Extend grace to one another as it has been extended to you. Now, for reasons known only to God, Satan is continued to operate on a short leash. Is that right? At the cross, his back was broken, yet he continues to operate on a short lease, and he is powerful. Peter says we're to flee, run. He's seeking to devour and destroy. But beloved, with the return of Christ, and this is where it gets cool, With the return of Jesus Christ, Satan's evil schemes come to an end. Huh? Are you ready for that? I'm ready for that. Revelation chapter 20. Page 1240. Revelation chapter 20. Listen to what's coming. I saw an angel. He says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. He's having a key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss. And he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. The return of Jesus Christ. Confinement. The opposer of God. The enemy of our soul. The one that seeks to undo and overturn and destroy the work of God. Will be bound. He will be bound. He will be cast into the abyss. The place, the ancient place of demons and evil spirits. Those that were confined in this place in the ancient angelic rebellion. This abyss is converted. It's converted now from a demonic dungeon into a supermax prison. Where Satan himself is cast. With a chain bound around him. With the door shut over him and locked. With the seal placed upon it that none could interfere to release him again. He remains bound for a thousand years. Now, I know the concept 
of chaining an invisible being is a difficult concept to wrestle with. How do you chain an invisible being? I believe with an invisible chain. And I'm good with that. I'm good with that. With an invisible chain. Well, just because we're unfamiliar with something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. How arrogant. How arrogant to say all reality exists only in my world of five cents observation. Really? There are, there are things that exist, by the way, that you can't see and touch. Did you know that? How about the laws of logic? They are immaterial, yet they are very real. Or how about this? Light. Light. Do you know it can be bent by gravity? Gravity bends light. And yet both of them are invisible. Isn't that fascinating? The fact that you can't see it, I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't smell it, I can't taste it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. How is an angelic being, a fallen angelic being like Satan bound? He is bound with an angelic chain forged by God himself. He's chained. He's imprisoned. The door is sealed. The prophet is communicating to us a certain guarantee that the dragon will be helpless to deceive the nations during the entire 1,000 year reign. Earlier, when we were down here, we were saying that it's going to be the greatest party the world has ever known. And I'm not being facetious about that. It is going to be a great and glorious banquet. They're going to come from the four corners to join Abraham at the table. And the reason that it can happen is because the opposer of God has been removed to a supermax prison where he is unable to disrupt any longer. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to a party in which there's no gate crashers, huh? You know, when Jesus came the first time, only a few shepherds noticed. When he comes again, the armies of the world will be gathered to oppose him. When Jesus came the first time, the nation of Israel was hostile and murderous. When he comes the second time, they will fall on their faces in sorrow and repentance and believe. When Jesus came the first time, Satan incited King Herod to try to destroy him. When he comes again, Satan will be imprisoned like a cosmic criminal. When Jesus came the first time, he threw open, wide open, the doors of salvation for any who would, with childlike faith, seek to enter in. When he comes the second time, listen to me, when he comes the second time, he will slam the door shut and he will banish into outer darkness all who have refused him. Don't be caught. Do not 
be caught. Come in now. Come in now. The door is open. The door is open. How do you enter in? Personally. Individually. Alone. In your pew. Ron's going to come here in a moment and lead us in some singing. As he does that, I'm not going to ask you to get up out of your seat. I did ask last week. I'm not going to ask again this week. What I'm going to say to you is, don't get out of your seat. Do not get out of your seat and leave this room until you have personally and individually done business with God. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, our hearts long for the return of Jesus Christ. We are saddened and we are sickened by sin. Not just the sin without that we observe in the endless chatter of a 24-hour news cycle, but more particularly and more specifically and more painfully our own sin, our own guilt, our own failure to live as we know we should. And our Father, no, many, no matter how many times we have tried, we are unable to reform ourselves. Oh, we promise we won't do that again. We won't think that way again. We will avoid that behavior again and then again and again. We fail. And the guilt and the condemnation accumulate against us. Oh, Lord, help us to flee to the cross. For it is only there that the burden can be lifted. It is only there that it can be placed upon Christ. It is only there that your wrath can be extinguished, that guilt can be taken away, and that righteousness can be satisfied. It is only at the cross that there is any hope for mankind. Father, I pray this morning in this place that you would deal personally and individually and privately for those who are guilty and know it. Those who need your forgiveness. Those who need to speak with you. Lord, those, whether they be now your children or those who are not, I pray they would not leave this place until they have met you alone. May you send your mighty spirit, Lord, to cleanse our souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As Ron comes and leads us in singing, when the song is closed, you may get up, you may leave. If there is someone sitting in the pew near you who is praying, don't disturb them. Don't disturb them. Give them their time.